this is my Friday book show, Big Books and Bold Ideas. Thanks for listening in. Ask Americans about the image of our country as a melting pot, and you'll often encounter a kind of misty-eyed, nostalgic pride. Polling from Pew and other public opinion organizations support that. But writer Rajahat Ali nails the hypocrisy at the heart of the American character. He asks in an essay in his new book, Who and what are you when you're both us and them? When I'm a native but seen as a foreigner, when I'm a citizen but also seen as a perpetual suspect. Piercing questions, but Ali asks them with this self-deprecating humor that is hilarious and disarming. Wajahat Ali is a writer, playwright, political commentator, and lawyer. His new book is titled, Go Back to Where You Came From, and Other Helpful Recommendations on How to Become American. And he joins us this morning. Welcome. It's good to have you on the show. Carrie, I feel like I should hire you as my publicist. That was an amazing introduction. <laughs> I, like if the young kids, I would say you I'll know, send you a check, but the kids use the Venmo, so I'll Venmo yeah. you. Yeah. I, I, after, after we're done with this, I'll send you the details, okay? <laughs> Here's a New York Times headline that I think captures the paradox of the melting pot from May 2019 in the New York Times. Hmm. Americans like diversity, survey finds, at least in the abstract. I mean, you live this. Talk to me about what that's like. It's exquisitely American. We love the concept of diversity. We love the image and the narrative of the Statue of Liberty welcoming people to our shores. We love the idea where you can bootstrap yourself and anyone, regardless of their skin color or their identity, can make it. But hey, black man, don't you dare kneel peacefully and quietly to protest police brutality and make it uncomfortable for us. Hey, black and brown folks, don't you dare protest and say black lives matter. Hey, black and brown folks and Asian folks, stay in your lane. And so we love watching the movie Get Out and listening to the Beyonce and saying that we voted for Barack Obama once and live in a post-racial society. But when it comes to actually talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and when it becomes a bit uncomfortable, Kerry, Look what happens in this country, always. There is always a backlash. And now we have to ban books written by black and brown authors. And some people are more comfortable with their kids getting COVID than reading a book by a black author talking about diversity. That's America. You have struck a nerve with the book banning thing. I I mean, do do the people who try to strike these book books off lists. I mean, this is going on Georgia, Texas, a lot of places. Do they believe that that will quash the idea? I mean, this is the fallacy of this, that if I stop my child from reading a book, they'll never learn about this anywhere else. What is it? Well, what it is is the following. I always say, like, you know, the America that the rest of us have envisioned is one that needs to stretch and expand to accommodate the rest of us as its protagonists, co-protagonists. The America that you're talking about, where we have to ban books, is driven by fear and loathing and and, and hate. And they believe America needs to constrict, right? And like you said, if we just ban the books, then we'll get rid of these blacks and browns. If we just ban the books, then they'll know their place. If we just ban the books, no one's going to talk about slavery and we can hold on to this myth. And that myth is very important, Carrie. The myth where... Apparently, everything is perfect. There's no such thing as racism. There's no such thing as structural inequality. If you just work hard, you'll make it. Because if you acknowledge that reality, Carrie, what happens? 
it does a complete 180 on this whole thing called the American dream. And not only that, you now have to acknowledge and confront the injustices. And finally, ask yourself, what's your role in perpetuating it? And will some people give up that privilege so the rest of us can live free and all of us can feel great again? Or will some people hold on to it so only a few people can feel great and be free? That's the tension. It's always been the tension in America. So my guess is that these legislators or school board members or who's ever tried city council members who are trying to constrict the the uh, discussion and understanding of ideas do not see themselves in the role of of what you've described as narrowing as constricting as limiting uh, the free exchange of ideas that's also the the incredibly annoying paradox of this, that they would apply their own, you know, ideas and and disciplines about what is proper onto a community. But but I don't think they see themselves in this, in the kind of role that you've just described. And so it's very, no self-knowledge. And so it's really difficult to have the kind of open discussion about something like banning books with people that don't have a lot of self-awareness about just what it is they want to do. Well, Kara, it's human nature. Nobody sees themselves as the villain. Everyone is either the hero or the victim of the story. And in the United States, you know, it's easy to imagine that people have horns on their heads and breathe sulfur and have tails. I I hide my horns, but most of you people don't have (laughs) horns, right? We're just people. And the, the beautiful, delicious irony of this is that you touched upon is that those in power feel like they're the victims. And Mm -hmm. those in power, historically, I mean, just look at the KKK. You know, if you go back and just read the literature and see the movie Birth of a Nation, which, by the way, was the juggernaut in 1915, right? It was like the Avengers Endgame that even Woodrow Wilson uh, screened in the White House and it helped revitalize and popularize the birth of the KKK in the modern 20th century. Not making that up. If you even look at that movie and the narrative and what that reflects about America is that the white man who was in power at that time still felt that they were the victims because they were threatened by the increasing emancipation of black folks and the simple fact that black folks were having equality to them threatened them and literally felt like they were replacing them. It's all done from insecurity and fear. And with power and privilege, you know, uh, power is oftentimes uh, ignorant to its own abuses and its mm-hmm. own privileges. It's blind to mm-hmm. it, like you were mentioning. But also, if you've been in power your whole life, equality looks like what? Oppression. And that's what we're witnessing right now. Cultural anxiety, the fear of being replaced. For the rest of us, Carrie, like you mentioned in the beginning, you know, the rest of us who are both us and them and American has a little asterisk next to it. We don't want to replace you. I just want to come to your home and eat meatloaf. I just want an invite to the party. So will we rather stretch or will we constrict? And that's been the continuing tension in America and whether or not we will survive as a country. You know, I use that phrase melting pot in the introduction, and I was curious about who coined it, where it came from. Do you know the story? No, I do not. It, it, I thought maybe as a playwright, you know, this might sound familiar because a Russian Jewish refugee mm. coined the term in his play in 1904. The play was a huge hit. Even President Teddy Roosevelt liked it. And Americans loved the concept of this. They embraced the, the phrase. They loved the idea of it, even as they didn't. I mean, 
again, with as what you're calling tension, but what I think we can call open hypocrisy at times and then pretty mm. subliminal hypocrisy at times. It's such a conundrum. Well, ex- I mean, what are you melting into? I've never been a fan of that, even though I understand the idea. You don't like it. <clears throat> yeah, because I like my form. I don't know about you. I don't like to be a liquid goop <laughs> mixed in with ours. I, I always preferred the analogy of the tossed salad. Uh, it's, it's healthier. Everyone maintains their form. It's, it's diversity. But, you know, I understand the concept. But, you know, even in that concept, the reason why people enjoy it is you're usually melting into whiteness. And huh. what happens to those who cannot melt into it? I'll give you an example. Black folks have been here for over 400 years. Mexicans, indigenous Americans, the Chinese who built the railroads. You know what happened to them? The Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. Thank you, Chinese people, for coming here and building the railroads. Wait, you're getting a little bit too much comfortable. We got to kick you out. So we, the rest of us don't never get to melt in to anything. We're always excluded. And even if I did get to melt in, I, I like you, Carrie, but I don't like you that much. <laughs> you don't want to melt with me? Yeah, I don't want to melt <laughs> with you. I'll, 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 I'll stand sad by, side by side with you and we'll eat a crouton. I'm How's sad that? to hear that. I had that. Uh, I had a great image of us melting together, <laughs> melting together oh in gosh. this bland salad that has no taste, That's but right. is very safe. <laughs> That's right. One of the things that you write about is as these white supremacy movements have kind of come out of the woodwork, always there, sometimes pretty visible, sometimes not. Americans are seeing what you and others have known for a long time, so. I want you to um, define that truth that you've understood for a long time about America, a country you love, I might add, as you make clear in the book. But what what do you know about it that maybe many of us do not? America is a country where to be American is conditional for the rest of us. It comes with an asterisk. And Mitch McConnell just recently said it. You know, I don't think he was even being intentional. I think that's how he felt like. You know, he goes, voting rights are doing going well. Americans are, <laughs> African-Americans are, are voting at highest rate, uh, higher rates uh, just as other Americans. And you're like, huh. It's, it's always about who's in the inside group and who's in the outside group. And the, the dark heart of America has always been racism and white supremacy. And we fail to acknowledge it. It's like the Voldemort, right? We don't want to mention it. And once you acknowledge it, this American dream, which is so seductive and beautiful, uh, you also see the nightmare and the warts. And for the rest of us who are still striving to be a co-protagonist, we've lived through the nightmare. Uh, we've lived uh, through the terms, go back to where you came from. We've been told you'll never melt. You'll never belong. No matter what you do, no matter how many boxes you check off the checklist, overnight this country can turn on you on a dime unless you are seen as white. White is American. It is mainstream. It is seen as the Rust Belt, the heartland, the real American, the average worker, the patriot. The rest of us are always sidekicks auditioning. And that's what it means to be an American like the rest of us with an asterisk next to your name. How do those auditions go, do you think? 
<clears throat> Condemn violent acts done by violent people you've never met or else a nameless judge, jury, and executioner <laughs> that always holds your loyalty as suspect will convict you. And no matter how much you condemn, especially after the war on terror for the past 20 years, you've never condemned hard enough, Carrie. You've never condemned fast enough. And even if you've condemned it, guess what? The other Muslims or the other black folks or the other Latinos, how come they can't get their act together? Where are the moderate Muslims and the moderate blacks and the moderate Latinos and the moderate Asians? How come they just can't pull their stuff up from the bootstrap? And actually, by the way, you're brown. You're a good model minority. Why can't the rest of them be like you? If only you weren't a unicorn. It's never enough. You never win the game. <laughs> it's exhausting. What's the, you have this hilarious list of how to be, is it American? What, American. How do you, how do you, American. Where's that come from? You know, just uh, the way South Asians talk sometimes, uh, <laughs> the, the way they say um, America. So it's like, instead of America, it's like America. So like, we're going to America. And it's, of course, they can say America. It's just colloquial the way we sometimes say it. And sometimes growing up, you know, we had that my parents' generation say, oh, you're acting like Americans. And even that was a remarkable. But here my parents, right, in the 80s and 90s. They've been in this country for like decades at that time. And they said, you're acting like an American. And I remember I used to push back later. I'm like, wait a second. You're also American, but that's what happens is you kind of internalize, especially as an immigrant, I'm not the mainstream. Does that make sense? And mainstream equals white. Yeah. Uh, So the list says, unless you want to be labeled difficult and sensitive, never mention the lack of diversity and inclusivity in your workplace or refer to the children of Latino immigrants as anchor babies and the children of white immigrants as babies. You know, your humor is so pointed and direct. And I wonder, though, if while you're making audiences laugh, they're also seeing, you know, the bitter truth about us. We are also seeing the bitter truth about us. I know that's the power of satire. Mm. But if it never gets beyond, yeah, that's what Joe next door is like, that's not me, what, what are you really gaining? True, which is why I think it's important if you use humor, uh, you have to use it skillfully. I hope I have. Uh, first and foremost, humor um, sweetens the medicine. Uh, mm-hmm. What we've also seen is that when people laugh, uh, it releases endorphins and it makes them more susceptible to otherwise hostile ideas, politically and culturally. Sometimes humor also illuminates. It just clarifies the absurdity of life and the absurdity of racism. And, and other times it gives us a release, a catharsis that we just need. But I believe in this book, I have tried to make the humor very intentional. And like you said, pointed. Uh, It's not just about bashing. It's about also reflection and rumination and looking upon ourselves and myself in particular and say, hmm, everyone likes to see themselves as the enlightened hero, but maybe there are some, 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 some fog, some fog here. Maybe I got to clear up my lens. Maybe I have some missing spots uh, that, you know, could be filled in with some better education. Oh, Maybe I'm also hypocritical. Maybe I don't give up some privilege and comfort. Maybe I just tweet the right thing. But when it really comes down to it, I'm like everybody else and I'm part of the problem. And so making people a bit uncomfortable is part of the process, I think, of making them laugh and using satire well. And I hope I did that in this book is that it's also an act of self-reflection for both me and the conversation I'm having with the reader. You know, it's it's interesting to hear you talk about the neuroscience of this because I was reading some research from 
uh, a neuroscientist who who writes a lot about the science of humor. I think his name is Scott Weems. And there are actual chemical reactions mm-hmm. in the brain when you know a, a comedian or someone a satirist like you is presenting this hypocrisy in a humorous way. It makes the messaging uh, that sounds conflicted and confusing more acceptable to the brain. Isn't that That's weird? Right. I wonder what what do you think the the first question I had about that was, why did we evolve like that? Why are our brains like that? We're storytelling animals. For whatever reason, mm-hmm. this is how we understand our place in this world, and this is how we understand the world. And not only that, this is how we make sense of the chaos and, of, and uncertainty of existence, the absurdity of existence. I look at the theater, right? You have the mask uh, of the person crying, and you have the mask of the person laughing. They go hand in hand. Um, when life gives you lemons, some people make lemonade and some people like me make achar, a delicious South Asian relish that can be eaten with rice and bread. And I think <laughs> humor, good. yeah, I think humor allows us that space to like a tear. It's a release, right? So much, you know, like we have people drinking urine and, and, and <laughs> taking horse dewormers during oh. a pandemic that has killed 900,000 people, right? <laughs> And so you can cry about it because over 950,000 Americans are dead. But then sometimes humor allows us an askew angle to kind of absurdly appreciate the absurdity of it, but also mm-hmm. make some pointed commentary. And I think we need humor as an evolutionary tool to emotionally process life. Does it work, though? I'm- yes. Yes? Why are you so, so sure? My life. I feel like, you know, some people cry and some people laugh. As you can read from the book, I'm not one to really cry, even though it's very healthy. And my wife thinks I'm a robot because she's like a deeply evolved, emotional, sensitive person who cries when looking at a snail. And she goes, what's wrong with you? How come you never like cry? Well, you're a freak. But I, I don't. I'm like an android. I'm like this old Spartan man that is not. Too, if you're listening, this is not healthy. You should cry. It's like healthy to cry. But I'm like this old school throwback to like the 80s action hero. I never cry. Uh, but I laugh. And I think my my. My my laughter is a way of me processing pain, of processing absurdity, of just enjoy, and also having joy. Carrie, you know, we need joy, and I think human beings, as as they've evolved, literally hunting and gathering, running away from predators. Uh, if you don't have joy, even in the most painful moments, like most of us right now living in a lockdown, if you don't find those fleeting moments of joy, if you don't seize them, if you don't laugh loudly, it becomes makes living miserable. And I I really do believe that that laughter and humor allows us to live. It's like this evolutionary tool. Like I'm a parent. We just wired that your kid cries at a certain pitch. And, and as a parent, you know this, right? I'm sure you've done shows on this. Like a parent has to respond to it, mm-hmm. right? It just, you just, it's just amazing how this works. A baby's cry at a certain pitch and a parent says, okay, I got to get up even though I'm tired. I feel like just like that, it's, it's a tool for survival that we have adapted and perfected or are perfecting for us to process our place in the world and process the misery sometimes, and joy of living. <laughs> okay, I have a ton of questions about what you just said, but let me remind listeners, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to my Friday book show, and I'm talking with Wahajat, Wajahat Ali. I know well I was going to mangle that. No. Uh, he's a playwright and a writer and a political commentator, and we're talking about his new book, Go Back to Where You Came Come From, and other helpful recommendations on how to become an American. First, what is it about snails that makes your wife cry? 
my wife is one of these like really good human beings who's de- like she's she's gross. She's like that woman. You know something about Mary, a throwback. She's like that Cameron Diaz character. All the guys loved her. She's brilliant. She's played sports. She's beautiful. And she's deeply empathetic. My wife, one time, when we just got married, we were in the Bay Area. It had just rained. And there was like a little snail that had emerged. And she saw the <laughs> snail, like just, you know, being a snail and kind of quietly scraping away. And she goes, look at that. It's so beautiful. This poor snail. And she was about to cry. And I said, there, that tear better not come out. You better put that tear back in. I, I, I cannot have you crying over a snail. She goes, oh, okay, I won't. And then, then I felt bad for making my wife not cry over a snail. Jeez, you know, you clearly have not, you know, when when couples live together for a long time, they maybe they take on a bit of the best qualities of the other <laughs> one. You clearly she, <laughs> have not She's been a much better human than all. me. <laughs> but you know what she says? She says I make her laugh. There you go. Now, honestly, she oh, was I mean, we mentioned this huge. in the book when we married I was, you know, I was completely broke. I had like $600 in my account. I had a 97 Toyota Camry without a driver's side door handle. And I had to make a claw with my two fingers to open the door, which I thought was normal. Then my friends are like, what the hell's wrong with you? I had a PS3 and a couple of clothes. And my wife at this time was a doctor, you know, brilliant in, in, in DC. And she married me, even though she was pursued by like 300 guys. I say this without exaggeration. I'm and sure. then later on, I was like, you know, I had nothing. Why? Why did you invest in me? And she goes, you know, you made me laugh. Hmm. That's a big deal. Has it seen you through some tough times as a couple? Uh, yeah. You know, uh, we share. You know, even though we might have slightly different personalities, I think we have a we we have that same type of uh, perspective with the universe that terrible things sometimes happen to good people, and it's called life. That's it. And you have to live through it. You have to play the hand you're dealt at the time you're given. And for us, even though we've been so lucky compared to most. Three years ago, about eight months before the pandemic, our two, our then two-year-old daughter was diagnosed with stage four cancer in need of a full liver transplant. And that that just, you know, that hit, that's like the universe sucker punching you in the gut. And, you know, if my wife and I did not have this perspective, if we did not share this perspective, if we were not allowed to laugh, if we didn't find moments of joy, we would not have survived it. But now, fast forward, here we are. My daughter, Nuseba, is a stage four cancer survivor with a full liver transplant. And right now she's in the next room and has decided at 12 p.m. to wear her Minnie Mouse costume with the Minnie Mouse ears. Of course. Yeah, of course. And they're watching Encanto. And apparently we're talking about Bruno for the 37th time today. Uh, I read, I guess it was called The Meditative Story about your daughter's diagnosis. Yes. And- the surgery. So I am so happy to hear how she's doing. How did the story come about? Uh, the, this, the meditative story was this invitation uh, by this uh, group that, that does this type of podcast. And they said, you know, we, we use storytelling and then we mix it with, um, uh, you know, a, a, a person who's skilled at uh, breathing exercises and it became this 25-minute story where I, where I wrote the story and I told the story about how, you know, we used these, you know, whatever tools we could use, Carrie, to maintain our sanity, to fight for our daughter's life, to raise my son at that time. My wife was pregnant and now we have baby Khadija who just turned two. And we said, you know, yeah, I gave these tips uh, uh, for folks. I said, you know, basically... This is what we did. This is our perspective. This is how I imagine it. And I kind of gave the story of how I found out of, about my daughter's cancer, 
where I was giving a TED talk at the TED main stage. Uh, and that week I had left Vancouver and my wife calls me crying and says, we found some bumps on your, your daughter's stomach and we were waiting for the results. And the, in the morning where I had to go in front of the TED stage and give the talk and the talk was the case for having children. Uh, wow. My wife says it's confirmed there was stage four cancer. And from that moment on for the next eight, nine months, it was just going through so many challenges because this poor girl, every setback she could have, she had until the page turned and there was a plot twist and an anonymous liver donor stepped up who happened to live just 20 minutes away. And the doctor said the surgery was the cleanest surgery he's ever performed. And she rang the bell in January, two years ago. Um, and now she's cancer free. And so the reason why I kind of did that arc was in these moments of despair and pain and uncertainty that we're all going through right now, why hope is so important and why investing in hope and joy is so important to give you that fuel necessary just to live another day. And sometimes that's all you have is hope. Would you mind if I read just a couple sentences from the story? I mean, I wanted our, our audience to hear kind of as as the page turns, as you realize that People are stepping up to help. Would it be all right if I read a couple Please. lines? Okay. You're right. We give people an opportunity and they show us their appetite for kindness and selflessness. We see that people are willing to set aside their differences on politics, religion, and class. If you invite people to participate in the ongoing narrative of a little girl struggling to survive, they will answer your invitation. Even people who hate me because of my politics... This moment prompted me to give humanity a second chance because humanity gave me a second chance. That's not, I get the feeling you didn't think that's how the story would end. That people would be that generous and, and kind. I mean, you can you know, hear your skepticism coming through. Over 500 people stepped up to be a donor for my daughter. Wow. Uh, most of them people I've never met. My mom says that, you know, she joked, you know, Wajahat, if you would have become a doctor, uh, maybe Nuseba wouldn't be alive. You know, the fact that you're a storyteller and the fact you're on TV and the fact you're a writer, you were able to share Nuseba's story. And as a result of that, her story went mainstream, global even. And 500 people stepped up and people then invested in becoming donors. And now we found out like, you know, two years later, Carrie, that those people who signed up to be Nuseba's donor, even though they didn't give the liver to, or kidney uh, to, to Nuseba, she just needed a liver. They've stepped up and helped other kids survive. Isn't that amazing? Wow. And oh so, my gosh. yeah, wow. and, and literally it's amazing. And like, I've had messages and, and someone emailed me and said, I hate all your politics, but I'm praying for your daughter. And someone said, I hate everything you write on Twitter, but I've signed up to be Nuseba's donor. Uh, we wish the best. And so I think it was important for me at that time because of what was happening in the country, because I get these emails every day, even now, go F a good, go back to your country because we have the Muslim ban, because we have Asian Americans being beaten up for coronavirus, which has no ethnicity or zip code, because we're seeing, like you said, this restriction, the censorship, the banning of books, you know, it's an ugly time. And, and pan the pandemic has flattened us, but flattened us unequally and given us this beautiful snapshot of America with all its warts and glories. And it's, it's easy to lose hope in your fellow human beings and your fellow Americans. But then this happened, and I had to mentally prepare myself for the fact that I, ha I would have to bury my daughter. And I mentioned that in the book. You know, I stay up late at night 
after the kids went to sleep and my wife went to sleep. And I used to imagine every scenario to emotionally prepare myself as a parent. But then the, the story I chose to invest in is, you know, maybe I won't have to bury her. Maybe someone will step up. Maybe someone will be kind. Maybe there'll be medicine and doctors and science, and maybe she'll live. And lo and behold, the page turned. And the plot twist was that regardless of your politics and regardless of how odious some people are, when it comes to a two-year-old girl getting cancer, nearly everyone says that's not right. And we should rally to help this little girl. And that's what we found out with Nuseba. So here's here's something, though, that is still a little incomprehensible about this. I mean, the people who, you know, would attack you on Twitter, hide behind the anonymity of Twitter and say the most destructively mean things to you specifically on Twitter might be some of those 500 people who turned around to say, but I can give a body part. <laughs> I mean, this is the duality of mm-hmm. how we show up and who we are that is so, I mean, ever more mystifying to me with the way we behave on social media and the way that is, you know, leaked into the way we behave to one another. And yet, and yet, and, you know, because I, I, I would believe that you and I would do the same thing because there is still a common humanity that unites us. And even if someone is being atrocious to me on social media, if if I would hope that if they needed help and in real life I was there and I could help them, you know, suppose they fell in a ditch. Would I go, well, you fell in a ditch. I don't like your politics. Or would my faith and my decency say, this is a human being who needs help. Sure, they have odious politics, but I can lend a hand and I could be the better person. And like I write in the book, sometimes some people do good. Sometimes some people can change. And that's mm-hmm. what gives me hope, right? It's not everybody, Carrie. I'm not a, you know, you read the book. I'm a pragmatist. I'm not a mm-hmm. wide-eyed, you know, uh, romantic idealist. Uh, idealist. Right. I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful, but you, you can't win over everyone. But you never know. Human beings are complex creatures. You know, th- what people are uncomfortable admitting is that we all have the capacity to both be bad and be good, be hypocritical and selfish and also be selfless, to be decent and to be cruel. We all have the capacity to do that. And I think that's what self-reflection allows is, huh, I failed in this moment, I can do better. Or that person failed, but at this moment, that person needs my help. And Mm -hmm. in this pandemic, maybe I could be a bit selfless to help someone else. That's the only way we stretch and expand this country and move forward, which is together. Uh, Wajahat Ali is with us this morning. We're talking about his new book, Go Back to Where You Came From, and other helpful recommendations on how to become an American. And I'm Carrie Miller. I want to talk about your parents and their... their um... Well, first, let me get to this. Your father came from Pakistan... And yes. he was permitted to stay on an Einstein visa. And w- will you describe how he learns about this? I mean, some of the events leading up to this and how he learns about it on what I what I believe is the eve of his deportation back to Pakistan. Is that right? 
Yeah. So what happens is this is now the early 70s. My father's been here for a couple of years. He is a brilliant researcher and he gets a scholarship to, I believe, Northern Illinois University. Uh, he's going to be working with a famous professor. He's a, he gets a job as a teacher's instructor, right? Um, yeah, he's a nerd. His nerd game is strong. He, according to him, this is 50 years ago, he goes and, those, and in those days it was pretty easy to get an extension for a student visa. Uh, the immigration officer, he could tell all of a sudden, according to him, he says, I, I got a bad vibe. The guy looks up and down at him, and even though my father had brought all the paperwork, my father thought it would be routine. He goes, I don't believe that you're actually here to study. My father's like, what? What do you mean? He goes, you just come here to F our American girls. He's like, what? And he's ordered deported. Now, he has a week left, uh, and he, he says, well, I got a week left. I'm a poor student. I don't know what's happening to me. I don't know the immigration law in this country, but let me spend whatever little money and time I have to try to find some way around this. He goes to every lawyer, and according to my father, every lawyer says, you're SOL. Sorry. And there, but, but there was this one young man, my father said, he remembers it was in Hoffman Estates. These are the details my father remembers. A suburb in Chicago, a young man <laughs> named John, a young white guy, who says, listen, I th- I've read your case. I'm infuriated by it. This sucks. But, you know, there is a special visa that you can get where you get preference for people with excellent abilities and outstanding contributions. And I think as a researcher, you can get it. Later on, in the 1990, this was called the Einstein visa, the, the E-visa, which, by the way, Melania Trump got. Uh, her extraordinary ability was posing <laughs> naked on a rug. My father was a brilliant researcher. Thank you, America. I mean, I, thank <laughs> right? you but, for mentioning Yeah, but this was that. 1971. So, and, yeah. yeah, this is 1971. <laughs> so back in the day, there was no official Einstein visa, but that's kind of what colloquially it was called, right? Extraordinary ability. So my father gets to stay in this country thanks to the kindness of one man who felt so infuriated at the cruelty of another man. And I thought mm-hmm. the, the fact that my father, as an immigrant, that was a, almost kicked out simply for being brown and Muslim, but he was allowed to stay, right? It's the cruelty and the kindness. It's a beautiful microcosm of America. It's a beautiful microcosm of the immigrants' story in America, the push and pull, yeah, push and pull, excuse me. One man said, you F our American girls. And he called him an Arab, which is hilarious because my father's from Pakistan. So that just shows you how stupid bigotry is also, right? <laughs> uh, but then also shows you, you know, this young man, my father said, named John, who had just passed the bar pro bono, was listening there in the law firm. I, apparently he had just joined, heard the case, was kind of a nerd, thought of a solution, and my, went with my father to the immigration court. The judge, a kindly man. Uh, my father remembers, saw this, kind of understood what was happening, said, I'll give you time to apply. And then my father said, lo and behold, he was about to be deported. Less than three months later, on an expedited basis, he got the visa and five years later became I a citizen. I mean, you know, if you wrote it into a novel, it would, it, you know, it just, it sounds too trite in a way, too predictable in a way, in its unpredictability. Is your dad And it's an so idealist? amazing that my father never told me the story, Carrie. What? Yeah, you know that's the funny thing is if you if you if you if your parents are alive and your grandparents are alive and you're listening to this, I'd recommend just talking to them sometimes mm-hmm. because there's certain amazing things that happen to them that they just take for granted. And apparently, this is a story that everyone else has known in my family. Like my mom's like, "Oh yeah, your father never told you this story." And my father's like, "Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, I never told you this. Oh yeah, sit down. Let me tell you. I almost got <laughs> deported." <laughs> Is your dad an idealist, would you say, in, in the way that you are not? My father and my mother are like freakishly idealists. Like they have a chip missing in their brain. Um, and it's kind of annoying sometimes. 
because it gives them this like you know it gives them this like this 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 uh red bull fueled immigrant exceptionalism <laughs> you know <laughs> like you can bootstrap anything yeah, we're in a ditch 30 feet down. Just have faith in God and pull yourself up. And, and like, look at us, you, your mom and me. We're still happy, uh, even though, you know, we were incarcerated and broke and bankrupt. And why are you depressed? And so it could be slightly obnoxious and slightly infectious at the same time. <laughs> it, speaking of your mother, your father pursued your mother, even though he'd never met her, which... I think sounds like an arranged marriage to most Americans, but but really isn't. How how did this happen? So arranged marriages now are mo- most likely like accelerated dates with the intention of 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 marriage, right? That's what it is. Back in the day, my father, now still a young man, uh, he wasn't deported. Uh, thanks to the Immigration Act of 1965, brings over his parents, so everyone's now in America, and they used to get. Uh, this newspaper from Pakistan called Jung Newspaper. My grandfather used to order it. My grandfather was reading it. He sets it aside. My father picks it up and sees a photo of a young woman whom he found interesting. That photo was of my mother who apparently had come top in her class in Karachi. My father looked to my grandfather and said, who is this interesting young woman? And my father and my grandfather said, ah, she's the daughter of Commander Hashmi. I went to school with him in India. I know her. So my grandfather being a detective, then did the sleuthing work, sent my father's bio data, which is like his tops baseball card, his Tinder profile, <laughs> through the hands of an acquaintance <laughs> to Commander Hashmi in Karachi. And apparently in the back end, they set up this, you know, they, hey, are you interested? Are you interested? So my father had work to do, I think, in the Middle East. So the entire family stops over in Karachi. And and the, all like 30 people come, cram in the room. And, <laughs> and you know, everyone talks except my father and my mother. And then my father says, he tells, uh, you know, my mom's father, can I come back later and, t- and talk to you? He said, sure. So my dad comes back later and then my mom comes out and my dad, apparently, according to my mom, just sits there staring for five minutes. And then my mom goes, well, if you came here to talk, talk. Now, back in the day, <laughs> you have to realize in Pakistan, you don't do that. And so my mom says that her mother kicked her underneath the table and said, Samina. And he says, what, what? He's not talking. And my father uh, said something to my like my 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 mom's father that ah oh, she's got a she's got some sass and he smiled and I think the deal was the deal was sealed. But to this day, all my father says he goes she was interesting, and that's how they got <laughs> married. And like a few months later, my mother, young woman, landed in Dayton, Ohio, with the Ullies. Man, I mean, what a leap of faith! What what. What confidence that, well, like you said, I mean, they're idealists. We'll work it out. What could be so bad that we can't work it out? It's incredible. Yeah. My parents really do, you know, credit where credit's due. They're very, they are very special when it comes to this. Uh, They both think like this and together they make a very powerful idealistic unit. And if you were to meet them, especially after reading the book, you would have. Mm. You will never imagine what they have gone through. They don't wear their emotional scars on their face, or in their character, or the way they carry themselves. It's really something to. It's something to behold. What What do they think about how open you are about what you've been through and the tribulations that your family has endured, and what you wrote about their experience? I mean, is this something they think? Our son just has to 
that has to do this or are they embarrassed by it or what? So my, I interviewed my parents. You know, someone said uh, once that memoir is theft, and it makes sense because there's my version of the truth, your version of the truth, and the truth. And then when you're writing your own story, you're not writing your own story. There's the people that were in your life who become part of that story. And so I interviewed my parents. I tried my best to be as transparent and honest as possible in the book. And uh, I, had, I had them read it afterwards. And mm-hmm. they gave it their blessing. My mother for a moment was hesitant and it wasn't because what will people say you know that wasn't the question what will people say she was like i don't want this to harm you i don't want our story to harm you and also i think there was a bit of trauma because she goes oh this will now be revisited and people will talk about it again that's okay but i think now and you can't you can't blame them right if you read the book you'll understand what i'm saying Absolutely. is i'm very right. honest they go through a lot we go through a lot um and you know people my mom says yeah even though people know that not everyone knows that and you know people judge you and they'll mock you and they'll ridicule you and for my mother her main concern was she didn't want that pain to be revisited upon me but then now that the book's about to come out and she's seen people's response to it there's also uh, i think in the book they're very honest right i talk about self-reflection and they look back at their lives and their choice and they go yeah this is why we did what we did this is what we thought we were doing maybe we made a mistake but it's done and this is the truth, and this is part of your story, and you have to share it. And if you didn't share it, it would be incomplete and inauthentic. So they give it their blessing. Wow. wow. I watched this really funny Aspen Ideas Festival talk you gave where you talked about how you showed up at preschool only knowing three words, shut up, idiot, and something about spaghetti. Uh, oh, Pasquetio. <laughs> What's that? We are old enough to remember the Campbell Soup commercial, uh-oh, SpaghettiO, but I couldn't speak oh, yeah. English, so I used to say, uh-oh, yeah. Pasquetio. <laughs> so you get to preschool, and you know how to say idiot and shut up and Pasquetio. <laughs> that's it. Born and this, raised in America. What does this reveal about your, yeah, I mean, come on, no. What's this reveal about your mother? My mother and my father, this is, okay, so some people say, you know, we burn the boat, we're fresh off the boat. My parents brought the boat inside the home. Uh, we lived with my grandparents, three generations in one home. My father, grandfather, and my grandmother used to speak in Urdu. My grandfather said, you know, he's learning Urdu. They didn't teach me any English. This is hilarious at all. Even though I was born and raised in America, they named me Wajahat, you know, to blend. Um, and you know, each time I remember I was young, I came home one day and I was like, mama, I don't want to eat this. I think it was like tomato kakat. It's like this, this hardcore Hyderabadi, like tomato dish. And I want pizza. My mom's like, we've made tomato kakat. You're eating tomato kakat. He goes, I want McDonald's. I want pizza. They're like, you're starving or eating tomato kakat. So then I apparently stomped up, up, upstairs. My grandmother's like, how could you be so cruel to this poor boy? I'll order pizza. My mom says, no. I come down three hours later. I'm starving. I'm like, can I have pizza? My mom's like, you can have tomato kakat. And so then I had tomato kakat. That's my parents for you. And then when they threw me at Charles Hattery Preschool, with three, they didn't even tell me where they were taking me. I just, I swear to God, Carrie, I remember this. The only memory I have is crying as the lady oh, wait took a minute, me away crying? and my parents waved at me. I thought you me. never cried. Well, you that, I, was a ba- so I was a baby. The last time you cried. Yeah, child high school preschool. And I, like, I have no idea what the hell's happening. Who are all these white kids speaking this language I've never heard of? Like, you know, I thought everyone else was brown and had turmeric stains. No one told me. And then in hindsight, <laughs> my mother and father, when I told this to them, you know, my mom, I think last year for the first time ever, she goes, yeah. Maybe, you know, that was kind of harsh. But look, you turned out great. <laughs> my father's like, oh, you yeah. know, you'd, we, we knew you'd pick up English. 
So that's the, they, they kind of did that old school immigrant tough love. You'd be fine. Look at you. You're fine. That's what they did. That's, that was my America. Okay. So I've asked you if you'll read an excerpt from yes. fifth grade. I love how you, how you give shout outs to your teachers and, and all, all praise to teachers who were important to you. This is all praise Mrs. teachers. Peterson. Yeah. This is where Mrs. Peterson, your fifth grade teacher, realizes that you have some writing talent. What else should we know about Mrs. Peterson before you read it? Miss, this is fifth grade where I was so sick, I had missed about 30 days of school because of terrible allergies, and I was about to get kicked out. Mrs. Peterson was this freak from Kentucky who made us do 25 creative projects. I worked harder in fifth grade than I did in like friggin' <laughs> freshman year of high school. And Mrs. Peterson was from Kentucky, and she had this accent. I remember she came in for one year and made us do just amazing, ambitious creative projects. I thought that was her thing. And so in the second half of the year, I finally got like a good doctor. I got the weekly allergy shots. I was like this heavy dose of medication. And finally, after promising the school, I would work extra and overtime after school to catch up, which I did. I finally caught up. Miss Peterson said, okay, kids, you have to write an original one page short story. And this was 1991 now. And Robin Hood was coming out starring Kevin Costner with an American (laughs) accent playing the British hero and Morgan (laughs) Freeman, the voice of God was Azim, his Muslim partner and and like friend and sidekick. And for the rest of us, we're like, oh my God, there's a Muslim in this movie. This is amazing. And Azim prays in a way that no Muslim has ever prayed on earth, but we didn't care. We're like, this is dope. And so I did a 10 page short story (laughs) of my rendition of Robin Hood. And Mrs. Peterson, who, you know, you have to realize I was a sick, fat, shy kid. She always thought I was kind of like this weak loser. But then she read this story and she, in class, she gave me an A++++ and said, Waj, get up right now and read this story in front of the fifth grade homeroom. It's amazing. And I'm like, Miss Peterson, I'm fat, please. No. And then I think she's like, shut up, fatty, get up and read. And so that's when I first read my first story in front of an audience. Okay, so if you'll if you'll read, I don't know if I can stop laughing through your excerpt here. If you'll just read a little bit of what happens as you get up to read your story, your ten-page story. Epic. All right. All eyes on me. Time froze. My heart stopped. I forgot how to swallow. Had Mrs. Peterson asked me to punch myself in the stomach and inject bleach into my veins instead, I would have said yes without hesitation. I felt like the character who's surrounded by bad guys and is forced to come out and face them with hands up and all the laser sights pointed at his chest. Unlike in the movies, I wouldn't escape, but instead would end up shredded by the firing squad. I said bismillah under my breath and began reading. About 30 seconds in, I paused and looked up. No one had snickered or mocked me. I was waiting, expecting my bullies to hit me. Nothing. Silence. I kept reading. About two minutes in, I paused and checked again. Yo, you can hit me now. Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Nope. All eyes still on me. Most faces had smiles. Eyes were widened. A few girls were leaning forward. They laughed at all the right places. They caught most of the jokes. They dug the action scene. And by the time I finished, Mrs. Peterson didn't even have to tell them to give me a pity clap because they were all applauding. My sweat came from adrenaline adrenaline and joy. I sat down amid nods of respect from some of my usual bullies whose daily part-time job was to make cheap, easy jab, 
make a cheap, easy jab about my weight. You're going to have to do this for the upcoming talent show, Mrs. Peterson said, assuming her role as my Colonel Tom Parker. That was the one with the fifth, sixth, and seventh graders, all of the older kids. I said, no, no, thank you. But she told me I had to do it. Next thing you know, a few weeks later, I'm on stage in front of hundreds of students, including the elders. My Eminem eight-mile moment had arrived. With the same enthusiastic response, I had discovered my superhero skill. I had found a voice. I went home and gave my parents a short story. My father read it while drinking chai at the table. After finishing, he said it was very good and told me I should consider becoming a writer. My mom, overhearing the conversation, rushed from the kitchen and said, yes, but first become a doctor. (laughs) True story. True story? I mean, it's also the first time... Or, or is it the first time where you really, you have that experience of, I hold this audience in the palm of my hand. I know exactly what to do with them. I mean, do you, do you trace back this, I have a voice and I have something to say and I know how to express it creatively back to this experience? Uh, yes. This was, yes? you know, a hmm. pivotal moment. This was, if it's a hero's journey, this is when the hero discovers he might have a superpower and the plot twist is that his ordinary life could potentially be made extraordinary. This was, you have to realize when you were a fat kid growing up, this were the kids of the 80s and 90s. And I used to wear husky pants and I'm sorry for triggering everyone who's listening who used to wear husky pants. I think <laughs> some people just crashed the their car. You husky pants. <laughs> What's that? You write a lot about the husky pants. I, I must you, if, not understand this very well. Anyone, I guarantee you, at your next event or next party, ask someone who used to wear husky pants and see their response and everything will make sense. Husky pants is the enduring trauma of all children. Even if you're, look, I've said this before, it's true. Every speech I've given where I talk about my husky pants experience, after every speech, no matter where I am, there's always one person who comes up to me afterwards when no one's around. They look over their shoulder and go, hey, I also used to wear husky pants. And like like this sh- deep shame and pain, but you know why? it was I was a husky Wait, pants. Wait, why? Because back in the day, this was pre Dove soap commercial. There was no Lizzo. There was no like anti body shaming commercials. Right? There were only two versions of humans: normal, fat, and the fat kid <laughs> used to endure World War Three every day. I was the fat kid. And they used to make this pants, these pants to brand us, us, us fat kids. And one of the pants was husky pants they used to find at Sears. After you walk down the aisle past the, all the normal section pants and its own section was husky. And just to make it very subtle, on the backside of your butt in big Times New Roman font, there was a sticker that said husky. So just, yeah, you laugh, I cry, right? This is where there's roles reverse. So imagine being a husky pants wearing kid, shy brown kid, Muslim kid, couldn't talk to girls, and, you know, who had this little talent. And your teacher says, not only do you have to read this story, you have to read it in front of that homeroom where half the people used to make fun of you. It was that sliding door moment. And it gave me confidence. And then slowly but surely, Carrie, over the next three years, fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, I got more and more confidence. I used to flex where I ended up then, I think in eighth grade, I got the most funny and most unique award. But in that fifth grade, I ended up you know, at the end of the year, we did these awards. And the award that I won was most talented, best writer, best artist. Wow. What a triumph. I got the hat <laughs> trick. <is> great. 
It's great. Waj, I've loved this. Absolutely loved it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed this conversation. Wajahat Ali's book is called Go Back to Where You Came From and Other Helpful Recommendations on How to Become American. 